Good morning. Thank you, Tim. That was not a small passage of scripture to read this morning. Pastor Todd was going to be preaching uh, this morning, uh, but was unable to do so. Many of you maybe by now have heard the news uh, that Katie was diagnosed with breast cancer last week. And uh, as you can imagine, it was a busy week for them of testing and doctor appointments and consultations. And so uh, I uh, volunteered to preach for Todd uh, this week, and uh, he gratefully took up the offer. So please be praying for them. Um, I think they're in a very good place right now. The, uh, the prognosis is positive, uh, but there is going to be um, surgery and chemo. And so it was not how they intended to spend uh, their last number of weeks transitioning out of Calvary. And so uh, do be praying for them. Uh, cards, encouraging cards, encouraging emails, uh, letting them know you're praying for them, that would be uh, super helpful. If there are ways beyond that uh, that you can help, we'll let you know. Don't everyone rush over to their house uh, after the service uh, today. Uh, but they are in a good spot. They're fighting the fight of faith, and I think they're, uh, they're staying positive with it. But do, uh, do send them a note or, or be encouraging or be praying for them uh, throughout the weeks ahead. We'll keep you updated. I'm sure they will uh, as things develop. So uh, with that news, let's pray uh, for the Wilsons. Let's also pray uh, for our sermon this morning. Father, thank you for uh, your grace that's extended to us in Christ and that we have uh, hope uh, for all things. We thank you for Todd and Katie and uh, their family and the ministry that they've had among us. And we pray now uh, for you to minister to them by the power of your spirit. We would pray uh, for healing, Lord, in Katie's life, uh, whether it be uh, miraculous, or whether it be through the skill of the doctors, uh, Lord, we pray that you would bring healing, uh, complete healing in her life. Give them, uh, the whole family, grace uh, for the trial that is to come and endurance. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a congregation to be an encouragement to them and to come alongside them well uh, in, this, in this season, in this trial, Lord. God, we thank you for the time that we have to gather together as a body today, and we pray that as we turn our attention to the words of our Lord, that we would uh, find from him the things that you want to say to us, speaking into each of our hearts uh, uniquely, individually, Lord, and then corporately together as a church. We pray that you would bless our time in your word together. In your son's name, we pray. Amen. Okay. So we are continuing on in our sermon series on Matthew of Jesus, our shepherd king, and uh, Tim has already read the text for us, the end of chapter 9 and then on through chapter 10. I want to begin the sermon today with a little bit of context pointing to the end of Matthew's gospel. At the end of Matthew's gospel, this is a spoiler alert, so if you've not read all the way to the end, you may want to just close your ears for a second. But at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus, after he's died and he's risen again, and he brings his disciples together and he gives them a commission the Great Commission, the mission that they are to go out into all the world, uh, baptizing in Jesus's name, the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching everyone to obey the things that Jesus has commanded. And that mission then becomes the orienting mission of the people of God. That's the church's mission in the world since Jesus's ascension at the end of Matthew or Acts chapter one, we see it as well. 
And it's the individual mission of every believer in our own unique capacities and callings and ways that we contribute to this larger mission. So from that moment that Jesus, right before he ascended, gave the mission, it it defines the church's purpose in the world. And in our text today, we see the first hints of this mission that Jesus is going to give at the end of Matthew's gospel begin to emerge. Up to this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been uh, healing and he's been teaching. And the focus of Matthew's gospel has been on Jesus's ministry. But Jesus is about now to turn a corner and he's going to start to, to hand off to his disciples the ministry that he himself has been engaged in. So the things that Jesus has been doing, his teaching and healing ministry that we've seen uh, through Matthew's, Matthew's gospel up to this point, Jesus is now going to delegate that or pass that off to the 12 disciples, to the apostles. And he's going to turn them loose to begin to do what he himself has been doing. So Jesus chooses the 12 disciples whom he designates as apostles. He sends them out on mission. And in the immediate context of our passage, this first mission that Jesus sends them out on in Matthew chapter 10 represents a sort of trial run a dress rehearsal, if you will, of the mission that he will send them out on permanently at the end of Matthew's gospel. And the instructions that he gives and the expectations that he sets for his disciples here in this dress rehearsal spill over into the larger, more permanent mission, the real thing that will come at the end of the gospels. So there's a good deal of important things that could be said in our passage this morning. Even as Tim was reading it again, I'm thinking of all the different things that, that Jesus says that we could reflect on. But, but I want to draw our attention most immediately to the way that Jesus frames up the expectations for his disciples as he is sending them out on mission. Jesus' words in this passage have perhaps the most direct and immediate application to vocational pastors and missionaries, to those that by profession have been set aside to go out and do gospel work and ministry for a living. We have a number of people in our church uh, that are like that. Our missionaries, of course, around the world occupy that place, our staff, our pastors as well. So that's maybe the most direct application of this passage. But Jesus' words also have application to any of his disciples who also, perhaps not professionally sent on mission, but nonetheless are just as meaningfully sent on mission, which would be everyone that bears the name of Christ. Each of us has unique giftings, abilities, and opportunities through which we can participate in and advance the mission of Christ, and he expects us to do so. So whether you're here today as a vocational Christian worker or perhaps one of our Moody students who is in process of preparing uh, for vocational Christian work, or perhaps you're here as one of the regular folk, as it were, including all the ordinary activities of life from parenting to plumbing and beyond, and you've surrendered your entire life to the overarching call of Jesus, Jesus' words this morning to his first apostles as he sends them out helps to shape all of our expectations about our engagement in the mission of Christ to which Jesus is still calling us today to engage in. If you've been tracking along with our Antioch process 
uh, as a church, you know that one of the ways that we're thinking through this is the way that our unique, our unique calling is derived from the context in which we live, the, the gifts and abilities that we have, and our passions. And all those come together and inform our sense of calling. I think, I think this text this morning has some words to say to those of you that are deeply engaged in that Antioch process and are looking to discern what it is that the Lord has for you. And we collectively are looking to discern what the Lord has for us as a church. And if you're not yet a Christian, then this passage, I believe, is just as important for you as well. As you consider the claims of Christ upon your life, you should know at the outset that Jesus is not merely calling you to believe some things, nor is he merely calling you to a moral code or a way of life. He is calling you to give up your mission for life, to take upon yourself his mission for life. So as you think about whether or not to become a Christian, these expectation-setting words about what it means to embrace the mission of God are very relevant to you as well. And if you're taking notes, as some of you do, I know, I discern four main expectations in this passage. So if the sermon is getting a bit long and you're wondering when will it be done, when we get to the fourth point, then we're done. So if you are uh, taking notes, I discern four main expectations that Jesus sets for his disciples in this passage. So let's get started. The first expectation found in verses 9, 35 through 10, 4. Jesus tells his disciples to expect that when they pray, they will be sent. Expect that when you pray, you will be sent. Jesus has been traveling throughout the land of Judea and the surrounding areas. He's been teaching. He's been preaching. And the needs that he has met, as we've seen in Matthew's gospel, are nearly endless. He doesn't fill all of the needs before he moves on to the next town. The crowds are following after him. He's needing to to escape at times to give himself and the disciples some space. People are sick. They're oppressed by evil spiritual forces. Some are paralyzed. And all these folks are flocking to Jesus or being brought to Jesus. And Matthew tells us in our passage this morning that when Jesus sees them, he has compassion upon them because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus then turns to his disciples and he says to them, the harvest is plentiful But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. In other words, there are many who are coming into the kingdom who need the care of the great shepherd. There are many who are ripe for the teaching and for the deliverance that Jesus is bringing, but there are not enough laborers to bring in all of the ripe grain. Now, note the first thing that Jesus doesn't say to his disciples in light of the shortage of harvest workers. He doesn't tell them to go out and get busy laboring in the field. Instead, he tells them to pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into the harvest field. And I've always found that 
a bit curious and somewhat against the grain with how I'm wired up to think about seeing and meeting needs. We might have expected Jesus to gather his disciples together around him, point out to the crowds and say, see, the harvest is ripe, and then say to his disciples, get out there and go take care of it. But he doesn't tell them to take care of it. He tells them to pray to the Lord of the harvest that the Lord of the harvest would send someone else to take care of it. Or is it really someone else? Have you ever noticed that when you start praying earnestly about something, God tends to involve you as part of the answer to the prayer that you've been earnestly praying? Earnest prayer sparked by compassion is very often the pathway toward being sent on mission. And that's exactly what we see in this text. Jesus shows the need to the disciples He tells them to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send someone out to take care of it. And then immediately in this text, Jesus appoints the 12 disciples to go out and to begin to harvest in the harvest field. Jesus wants us to see the world as he sees it, to be stirred with compassion. And then he asks us to pray earnestly that the Lord would send out workers to meet the needs that we are stirred by. When we see needs that evoke in us compassion and passion, our first response should be to pray that God would send someone to meet those needs. And then it's from this place of earnest prayer that the call of God may come upon our lives. What are you earnestly praying about? What stirs your compassion? When you look out in the world and you see needs, what is the the flock of sheep without a shepherd that you see? Perhaps you have no sense of the Lord's call on your life because you have yet to see the world as Christ sees it. Perhaps you need to open your eyes to the world around you and look beneath the surface of all the sanitized and happy Instagram lives that are shown every day on social media to see the pain and the hurt and the loneliness, the hopelessness and despair, the chronic fear that leads to self-destructive patterns of behavior, the broken relationships, the anxiety, the paralyzing sense of purposelessness that plagues our world. And if you cast your gaze further afield, perhaps, into the neighborhoods around you, you will see more overt, on-the-surface pain. Whole neighborhoods that have been ruined, all but ruined by violence and trauma, racial prejudice and systemic poverty. And then if you look even further afield beyond the borders of our country, you will see entire countries that are oppressed by their governments that should be serving them where class structures marginalize whole swaths of population, of the population leaving them without hope or recourse, where corruption reigns at the highest levels, preventing any progress toward a truly just society. Find the brokenness in the world that stirs your compassion, that stirs the shepherding heart within you. And then pray earnestly that the Lord would send someone to do something about it. And then expect that you, yes, maybe even you, will be sent as part of the answer. 
Expect that the Lord will send you in whatever ways are appropriate to your station in life, your gifts, your abilities, your opportunities, your age, your already in place responsibilities to bring the message of the hope and love of Christ to a world desperately in need of it. Expect that you will be sent to extend Christ's mission of mercy to those around you who are spiritually and materially harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So the first expectation that Jesus gives his disciples to is, is to expect that when you pray, you will be sent. The second follows in 10, 5 through 15. Expect that when you are sent, God will provide. Expect that when you are sent, God will provide. Jesus sends out the 12, we see in verse 5, but he sends them out, again, perhaps not quite in the way that we might expect, certainly not in the way that I would be sending someone out. Note that in verse 9, he instructs them by way of preparation to not prepare. It's a very curious way of preparing. He says, don't take any money for your money bags. Don't take any luggage. Don't take any extra change of clothes, no second pair of shoes, no need to make plans ahead of time about where you're going to stay. Just show up in town and find someone who's worthy. I don't know. I was just, I'm always, I imagine like, how did that work in town? You just walk in and knock on the door. You look pretty worthy. We're going to be staying in your home. Just wanted to let you know. If you get booted from town, Jesus says, don't worry about that. Just shake the dust off your feet and head to the next town and start over. These are challenging instructions. And for the high control people among us, this kind of freewheeling sort of talk can produce heart palpitations, I would imagine. What's Jesus getting at here? First, I think there's a uniqueness to this particular mission, this first sending of the 12. So I don't know that Jesus intends for all of his workers for all time to follow these instructions in the most literal way. Certainly that wasn't the practice of the earliest Christians uh, throughout church history. I'm also pretty sure it was not the practice of the ladies that we just sent to Poland on the Poland missions trip. <laughs> I was there for the send-off, and I may have seen an extra pair of shoes in one of the bags. I'm not saying who it was, and I'm not judging. I'm just saying may have been the case. In any, in any case, <clears throat> even if Jesus didn't mean for us to apply this literally in every situation, I do think that there is application here for all of us as we are sent on mission by Christ. I think the main thing that Jesus is trying to impress upon his disciples is that they will be provided for by the Lord of the harvest who is sending them that the success of the mission doesn't depend on them or their preparation or their own innate resources. That's not going to be the difference maker in the success, success of the mission. Jesus is telling them to expect that the Lord of the harvest who sent them will also see to it that they have what they need for the mission. This is an important point, and I think it underscores that the success of the mission is ultimately dependent upon the one who sends not the one who is sent. The success of the mission isn't about how carefully we plan or how meticulously we strategize or how wisely we gather together material resources. At the end of Matthew's gospel, as Jesus pulls the disciples together to send them what will be now the real mission into the real war, he says, I'm going away, 
but I'm still going to be with you as you go out making disciples. And he promises his presence to his disciples. And his presence is the provision that is needed to accomplish the work of Christ and the mission that he is calling us to. If he goes with us, then we don't have a need. Our preparations, whatever they may need to be in the moments, aren't the difference makers in the success of the mission. Unless the Lord builds the tower, the builders labor in vain. It is Jesus who goes with us in his presence that gives us the success of the mission. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that in spades at the front end of their mission. They're not to take anything except his presence and his power. It's easy, I think, to be overwhelmed by the needs that we see around us. If the field was ripe in Jesus' day, perhaps it is overripe in ours. How daunting and how challenging is the harvest to which we are called? Some of us choose not to see it because it is so overwhelming. But if we ever choose to see it, it is overwhelming. And how right we are to recognize and admit that we do not possess in and of ourselves what is needed to work in the harvest field. And I think that is Jesus' precise point. We don't have anything we need in and of ourselves, but we have everything we need in and of Christ. So what is the mission field that the Lord is calling you to? What stirs up the compassion within you, the passion to see the love of Christ and the mercy of Christ and the mission of Christ meet needs? What are you praying about, earnestly praying about, yet you shy away from because you doubt your capacities, your abilities, and your resources? Where does fear and doubt about your own competency stand in the way of meeting the needs that the Lord has stirred up in you a heart to meet? If you're plagued by doubt, then I say, by all means, by all means, continue doubting yourself. But what has that to do with the mission to which God has called you to? Doubt yourself and your own resources, but do not doubt Christ and his resources. Because that is the difference maker in the mission to which he's called you. Let your compassion and your earnest prayers take you to the Lord who provides all that you need to do the work that he is sending you to do. You don't have to have all that you need in place before you set out. You don't need to know where you're going to stay, metaphorically or literally. You only need to know that God is calling you to do it, and he will be with you every step of the way, and that it is his presence in your life that is the power for the mission. So expect that when you pray, you will likely be sent And expect that when you are sent, that God will provide. Which leads to the third expectation found in what is the majority of our text, 10, 16 through 39. Expect that when God provides, you will face opposition. Expect that when God provides, you will face opposition. Jesus tells his disciples that they should expect to be provided for when they set out on mission, but that doesn't mean it's going to be an easy road. 
Jesus does not paint any rosy picture about what faces the disciples as they set out on mission. He tells them that some will be arrested and dragged before the courts of high officials. Some will be flogged, betrayed by friends, betrayed by family, even killed. And we know from the remainder of Matthew's gospel, from Luke's gospel, then on through Acts, that not all of these things happened to the 12 when they went out on this dry run, this this, uh, dress rehearsal. But Jesus' words about this first mission envelops not only the first mission, but the real mission to come when he sends them out for real after his death and resurrection at the end of Matthew's gospel. And indeed, all of these things that Jesus has just said in this passage do in fact happen to the apostles and to many of the other Christian leaders. The book of Acts records the fate of many of the early disciples, not all of them, but we read about how Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, is stoned to death. We read about the apostle James and how he is executed by the sword. Peter is crucified. Paul is beheaded. John is left to die in exile. The history of the other disciples isn't contained in Scripture, but nonetheless, church history tells us that nearly all, that all of the original 12 saved Judas met their end prematurely in a violent death, martyred or exiled. The fourth century church historian Eusebius wrote about many of the accounts of the early Christians who were killed for their faith. So it wasn't just the original disciples and those that immediately followed, but persecutions marked the early days of the church. And many, many died horrifying deaths by the hands of the Roman Empire. But it wasn't just the disciples or the, those that followed in the immediate generations. But even today, in many parts of the world, Christians face marginalization, persecution, and martyrdom because of their faith in Christ. And by many estimates, by those who track these things, the number of Christian martyrs in our day and age exceeds any point in the history of the church. Now, not every Christian leader or Christian dies a violent or premature death, a fact for which I am very grateful. But we here in America, as heirs of the Western tradition, have largely been insulated from the worst of the trials that Jesus lays out and the expectations that he gives to his disciples. But even though we've been insulated from much of these, the expectations that Jesus sets for his disciples still hold true, even if not fulfilled in every way in our lives. Jesus himself is the primary example of someone who submitted himself to the will of God and encountered opposition and suffering. And as those who follow in the footsteps of Christ, we should expect no less. So the task that you've been earnestly praying about that one that you feel called to, the task for which God has promised to provide the necessary resources. You should expect to meet opposition and resistance as you set out on that task. The task won't likely be easy. You will need courage and faith to push beyond the obstacles and your own fears and your own insecurities. So be prepared at the outset Jesus did not send his disciples into mission, letting them naively think that everything was going to be all roses and rainbows. It wasn't for them. It won't be for us. Maybe you're already on mission, 
and you're already facing that opposition. You're in the midst of strong resistance and you are tempted to give up. But I would say to you, don't give up. Don't give up. The fact that things are hard does not mean that you are on the wrong mission. It means, in fact, probably that you are on the right mission. If you know that you have been sent on mission by the Lord of the harvest, then don't let resistance to the mission stand in the way. So first, expect that when you pray, you will be sent. Expect that when you are sent, God will provide. Expect that when God provides, you will face opposition, which leads to our last point in Jesus' closing comments to his disciples. Expect that when you face opposition, you will nonetheless meet with success. Jesus ends his instructions to his disciples with a hopeful indication that some will accept the ministry of the apostles, that there will be those who will accept them as those sent from God. And Jesus says, when they accept you, they are really accepting me. They will receive your message, not everyone, but certainly some. It's true that Jesus said that the road that leads to life is narrow and Only a few find it, but a few do indeed find it. We must not forget that. I think Jesus' words in this passage are very helpful for keeping us out of two possible ditches that we can get into. On the first side, we can have naive expectations about how easy it will be with God at our side to embrace his mission and move forward in success. And Jesus' words, as we've already seen, remind us that we should expect opposition as we move forward into the paths that he's called us to. But there's another ditch that we could fall into, perhaps those of us who have been in the faith for a long time, who in growing old have run into the danger of growing stale. And we can forget that God does still indeed work miracles in the hearts and the lives of people. Some of us, I fear, have ceased expecting, if we are honest with ourselves, that anyone really is going to welcome, in a truly meaningful, life-changing way, the message of Jesus and the coming kingdom. I sometimes wonder if we lose passion to throw ourselves into the harvest because we've lost expectation. We've lost the expectation that God really is going to do anything miraculous, that anyone really is going to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, meet God's love, and have their entire lives turned upside down and inside out. Perhaps for many of us, it's been so long since God upended our own lives with his grace that we no longer expect it to happen to anyone else. And so we lower the bar of our expectations to what we can manage on our own. We recalibrate the mission to more mundane standards And we content ourselves with first world miracles. Familiar with first world miracles? Perhaps you've heard of first world problems. First world miracles are the solution to first world problems. We were at a staff meeting a while back and we had need of a sound guy. And someone said, good news, we found a new sound guy. And someone said, it's a miracle. That's a first world miracle is what that is. (laughs) Or perhaps you're pulling into the parking lot and you find the parking space right there at the front by the door and you say, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides, it's a miracle. (laughs) Or you're praying for your kid to make the sports team and sure enough, he makes the sports team, it's a first world miracle. 
But I don't want to settle for first world miracles. And I don't want us as a church to settle for first world miracles. The gospel has the power to heal broken marriages, to break the patterns of addiction, to transform angry people into loving people, fearful people into faith-filled people, end cycles of violence, restore whole communities, break down long-held prejudices. There is power in the gospel to do real miracles, not just our petty little first world miracles that are first world problems we concern ourselves with, but to see the needs of the world and all of their depth and darkness and tragedy and to believe that we possess in the power of Christ a word that can go into those dark places and bring deliverance and healing. Jesus' closing comments to his first disciples remind us that we should expect the mission to succeed, that some will indeed receive with rejoicing the good news of the kingdom. So let's together in our own respective mission fields and then together as a church, let us proclaim the good news of the kingdom with the expectation that the gospel we believe and proclaim does indeed have the power to radically change lives. Maybe today you stand here in need of the life change that the gospel promises. You're not ready to be sent on mission. You actually are in need of receiving the mission. You've never given your life to Christ. Well, Jesus' words to his disciples is likewise a word for you. In verse 38 of chapter 10, Jesus says, Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus sends the disciples on a mission that ultimately will take them literally to their deaths. But he tells them that if you give up your lives, whatever your mission was going to be in life, Peter, whatever your mission was going to be in life, James, John, whatever you thought you were living for, I've got a new mission for you. Give your life to my mission. Lose your life for my sake. And I promise you, you will find it in the end. If you are not a Christian today, if you have not given yourself to the mission of God, you still are clinging to your own sense of what you think your life should be about. I would ask you, what is your mission for your life? What do you live for? What gets you out of bed? Advancement in your career? for early retirement so you can travel and see the kids so you can die so that your kids can die and your grandkids can die and the whole world is going to die and there is no mission that this world offers us that can withstand the end to which all of us in our humanness are pointed 
And so we chase after all these things, thinking that in them we're going to find hope and meaning and purpose. But there is no hope and meaning and purpose in this life apart from the life that Christ offers to us. Because it is in the mission of Christ that the life of Christ is found. And in the life of Christ, we have the capacity to transcend not only this life, but the life that is to come. And it is in Jesus' sanctifying work in our life that it takes all of our individual missions and brings them into the orbit of his mission to where our gifts and passions and our abilities can be used for something eternal rather than something temporal. So if you think that somehow the mission of Christ sounds daunting, it does. But it's daunting in a way that ultimately leads to blessing and to hope and to peace. And I would encourage you and I would exhort you that if you stand outside the gospel, now is the time to step into the call of Christ upon your life and his mission for your life. Maybe you're a Christian here today and you've lost sight of the mission that the uh, other sub-competing missions of this world have choked out or clouded out the mission of Christ upon your life, and you've too much made peace with life as normal. Perhaps it's time for you to re-engage in the mission of God, to turn your heart and your eyes like Jesus to the fields that are ripe for the harvest, to let the Holy Spirit re-stir within you compassion and passion, and to begin the work of praying and opening yourself up to what God would have you do in this next season of life. God calls us to mission, not to send us like soldiers into enemy fire as just simply a war of attrition against the enemy. He sends us into mission because he knows that all the missions that we would choose in the end can never satisfy, but his mission is the mission that leads us to life. He sends us ultimately to die to ourselves because he loves us and because he wants what's best for us. So if you're outside of Christ, then know that he's calling you to come to him and die so that he can give you his own life so you can live. And if you are in Christ, then be reminded that his path is the true path and the path of blessing. And don't be co-opted or seduced by the lesser paths that call out to us. God loves us, amen? And his mission is a good mission in our lives. Let's embrace it with all the expectations and hope that Jesus has laid out before us. Father, thank you that you sent your son to call us on mission. Lord, we... Uh, know that in your sovereignty and in your power, you did not need us, no doubt with angelic forces or other means beyond our comprehension, you could have carried out your mission independent of us. We could have simply been recipients of your mission, but you have made us more than recipients of your mission. You have made us now partners in your mission, and what a great privilege and opportunity that is. God, we thank you for it. I pray, Lord, that you would now uh, renew hearts, open up eyes in fresh ways to see the ways that you want to call us. I pray that you would calm fears, that you would strengthen, resolve, and you would help us to move forward with the confident expectation 
of your presence with us and your willingness to see the mission through to a successful end. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.